Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that looks at how we can make Vancouver a better urban experience. Together, we'll dive into the workings of our built environment and discuss how we can get involved in our community. Hi, I'm your host, Helen Loy. With every episode, I hope to share with you some insights from my industry experience and explore how we can make Vancouver a more livable and affordable place. I hope that you'll learn a little and perhaps be inspired to be more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. We've covered a variety of topics on previous episodes as they relate to housing, development, and the built environment. So where do we go from here? We had extended conversations with our previous guests, Michelle Sisa and Kill Salem, which didn't fit into their original episodes. In those conversations, they shared their thoughts on some of the key challenges and opportunities that we have as we ponder the future of housing. Later on in the episode, producer Aaron Johnson joins me as we look at the policy changes we've seen to date since we started our series. In past episodes, we've discussed some of the ways that our current approach to city building is not reflective of the type of vibrant and inclusive communities we want. The history of how we've built our cities and the way we've limited our supply is a key reason for why we're facing our current housing and affordability crisis. Kelsalem describes the magnitude of these changes and how it can be difficult for many to grasp. The power of, I guess, land use and jurisdiction around land use is around the way you can create value through land. And I don't mean financial value, I just mean, you know, people living on a piece of land this high or this high. And, and you know, we learned that through the Sanoc development, but it's also sort of, you know, this value proposition that I don't think is fairly represented within the discourse or within sort of the policy, which is there's... There's a cost to everything when we're not building enough. And there's also sort of this delayed impact, which is, you know, and I've said this before, is like we've underbuilt our communities in in our country for so long that trying to get out of that hole is at a scale that is so substantial that we actually can't even handle it. Like the public can't handle how big that number is. And not only that, when, and, and, you know, you probably have a lot of experience in this too, is like, even if you were to get realistic around achieving those numbers, you start running into all these other problems, like say on trades and access to trades to be able to even deliver that. And so, you know, and some of those things would work it out itself over time if there was really a, a ramp up, because I think the supply would, would start to come back, come with it, but it would take time for that filtering to happen. But it's just, it's at a scale that people can't really comprehend. And I get why it's just, it's so huge. And so 
it's one of those things where like we just have to get going now and do our best to try and get as close to what we need to because any delay on it is just going to make things worse down the road it's, and that's what's happened now right if we had started building 20 years ago at the scale we're trying to build now like things would be a lot different today we have a lot of work to do if we're going to make a meaningful shift beginning with changing the way we approach city building as we move forward not only do we need to change the rules but we also need to address our assumptions and expectations around what our homes and our built environment should look like we should also reimagine how we discuss those topics as a society. Michelle discussed some key challenges we will need to face and overcome. You know, there there's like this old like happiness study from Vancouver that I think is over a decade old that gets misconstrued a lot that's like people are less happy if they live in a tall building. Like people really cling to this idea that like you know, if you're living in a condo, you're sort of suffering spiritually, that they're like spiritually bankrupt places. And the only real fountain of community mm. is found on these like neighborhoods with big lawns and big houses. Like it comes up again in these city council debates. It's like, it's really just rich people saying like, our way of life is the best way of life. And like, you know, we don't even want to see people living differently. We don't want to believe that anyone would choose anything different. And, you know, it's, I think lots of people would rather live in an apartment building. But that's besides the point. Like, I've lived in apartments for like the last, I want to say, 15 years of my life. And I love it. Like, I love not being, have not having to drive as often as when I used to where I grew up in North Delta. Like, I remember the Safeway being a block away and it was just instinct that you get in your car and you drive to the Safeway. And it's just, it's crazy <laughs> when I look back and I think about that now. It's just, you don't think, you don't, you don't question it because it's this like society and this culture of just like, hey, as soon as I leave my house, I'm getting in a car no matter where it is I'm going. You know, lots of people are going to live in apartments, whether or not we agree they're the best way to live. Like it's kind of beside the point, but but you always see this, like that people just think it's the wrong kind of housing, like either the apartments are too nice. And so they're luxury and like it's just rich people who are going to live in them. And so they're opposed on that grounds. Or if it's like social housing or low income housing, they're worried that it's bringing in undesirable people. Right. Or it's too tall or it's like there's always a reason. There's always a reason to oppose it. And I think we should be recognizing that that's also like a great way for people to live, that people want to live in different family configurations and different living arrangements and different neighborhoods. You know, the idea that a vast amount of the city is kind of reserved for people who want the single family home lifestyle is is really exclusionary. And And I mean, I think like I really understand when people say that homeowners just they don't think of their house as an investment. It's a home and they care about it and they just want to protect it because you know, my parents have been in the same house for over 40 years now, and they love this neighborhood. This is their community. I want them to stay here as long as they can. Like, I totally empathize with that. And I just want to see people extend the same empathy to others who aren't in their situation, like renters in their neighborhood who would also like to stay, who would like to be able to, you know, have children in that neighborhood. Often what we hear in opposition to new homes is this idea that new people and new forms of housing are a threat to existing neighborhoods and residents. At the same time, younger generations, or anyone who has less ability to access existing housing in our cities, are asked to explore living further out and to move somewhere more, quote-unquote, affordable. 
Michelle challenged the realities of some of these comments. Yeah. Well, and like you say, change is inevitable. Like on West Side Neighborhoods, I think there's been this real emptying out of young families Mm -hmm. and like young people in general because, you know, these neighborhoods are so inaffordable and so inaccessible. And so that's changed too. I think a lot of people have seen their neighborhoods kind of calcifying. I hear a lot of lamentations about, you know, like Dunbar Street with businesses going under because there's, you know, there's so far few people in that neighborhood than there used to be. And I I use this example a lot, but when I was a kid in Caresdale, Halloween was like a party on the street. There were so many kids everywhere. And now we get like a tiny handful of trick-or-treaters. Like I just don't see as many children as I used to. I know that's very anecdotal, but I think that's a demographic trend in a lot of these neighborhoods. So again, when people are sort of trying to preserve their neighborhood, if it becomes sort of frozen in time, it really loses a lot of vibrancy. And that has an effect too, that I think a lot of people are seeing now that they're, you know, maybe their street looks exactly the same way as it did 30 years ago, but it's a lot emptier and quieter. And that has effects too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, In some ways, what happened during the pandemic was a really interesting sort of real world example of what happens when everybody puts this advice into practice at the same time that we hear a lot, which is, you know, if you live in a city that's too expensive, just move somewhere cheaper. And a lot of people did that all at once during COVID in like specifically in like late 2020, early 2021. And it really did. It made a lot of places dramatically unaffordable in a very short period of time. So in BC, like Vancouver Island, the Sunshine Coast, places like Nelson, they became really like dramatically different because they didn't have a lot of housing stock. They didn't have a lot of rental stock. They couldn't really adjust to a big influx of people moving in. So prices went up, you know, on the Sunshine Coast. I have quite a few friends who live there who said that like teachers or, you know, people who've lived in the community for a long time can't afford the rent anymore because there's such a dramatic influx. And that's played out all over the place. There were like viral TikToks from the Maritimes of people complaining about folks from Ontario moving in and like mucking up their housing market. The Maritimes in particular had like a huge influx of people moving and those are small communities, relatively speaking. And so it really illustrated that like you can't just tell everybody to move. For one thing, it's not practical for most people to move. It's, you know, people have jobs, they have families, they have communities where they live for a reason. But also when everybody moves, it just spreads the crisis around. And there are a few places in Canada that are still relatively affordable, like Saskatoon and Winnipeg. But if everybody started moving there, the exact same thing would happen. Like, this is not a problem we can just solve by distributing the population. And so I think that's like a really, you know, it's such a tiresome piece of advice to tell people to move. It doesn't make sense on an individual level. But we also really saw during COVID, it doesn't make sense on a population level because it just moves the crisis along to other communities that are similarly like really ill-prepared for the housing crisis. Nowhere is prepared for it. And, you know, it's just as much of a problem when it happens in Nelson or like in PEI or Halifax. It's the same crisis everywhere. It's the same factors that are making it, you know, really challenging for all kinds of residents, but especially residents who have less buying power, less security, who are renting, who are, you know, lower earners, who are seniors. Like it's, I hope that that like really puts a nail in the coffin of telling people (laughs) to just move somewhere as if that's like all the affordability advice we need. It's really like telling people to like skip the avocado toast. It just is utterly meaningless. 
Though changes to existing neighborhoods can be intimidating, denser and more vibrant communities are a win-win-win. Kelsalem describes how we should change both the political and public discourse and instead highlight how it can benefit everyone. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that goes to the material interests of the politics around these issues. And it's I think it's also why why progressives have lost so badly around housing debates generally historically I think that that's shifted in the recent years. But it, like, you know, to use it as an example, I the I think the narrative that actually is the most winnable is you're actually going to benefit from this. Yes. Yeah. And people like me are going to benefit from they're going to like think about all the people that will benefit from an increased density of taking a single attached house and turning it into six stories of rental or, or even condo if, if we really want to talk about it. But like, it doesn't matter. You can benefit from this and they can benefit from it. everybody kind of can kind of benefit from this. When that value proposition is actually proposed as a, a value add, I think you build a different kind of coalition. And, you know, an example of that, I think it was the day after Mayor Olivia Chow was elected, she was sort of doing all these interviews and she got an interview around like, yeah, we're going to build, you know, up to six units on a, on a water. And she said, I, if you own a home and it's a small little, you know, house that's on it and you want to build six units on it, like, I want you to win. I want you to be able to make some money off of that. And you should right. be, like, everybody should be allowed to, to succeed in this environment. And you should, it's not just the big developers that should make lots of money. It should be homeowners like you and so you know there's there's this initial reaction from some people to say like oh they're just printing checks to existing homeowners when they they do mass increase in density but it's like yes there are going to be people who win one way or the other but it's about what's the the long-term benefit and the long-term impact versus status quo versus the change and you know so just things like that where you know I've, i've long held this analysis that the typical like sort of left right political spectrum does not apply in land use debates and we see this playing out everywhere right so you know we we have we have this alignment happening from people like david Eby and pierre polivare you know you have mm-hmm. have even in the states in the in the us context like folks like alexander casio cortez and bernie sanders sort of aligning with like doug ford in some ways right so yeah. there's there's but on the flip side you also have the other side of it too where you have other types of sort of quote unquote progressive governments aligning with say like Kevin Falcon and the BC United because of the sort of slow growth, slow density kind of approach. So, you know, I've often said that the reason the typical left right political spectrum doesn't often work in this environment is it doesn't consider the role of culture in the left right political spectrum to the same extent. When you're talking about land use and you're talking about urban development, there are people out there who would prefer quiet single detached neighborhoods and don't want lots of stores or anything around. They just want a very secluded suburban life. And that's their ideal city. And, you know, they maybe drive downtown and go to work somewhere in the city, but they come back to their home and it's really close by and it's a, basically a quiet neighborhood. There's others who love being connected to cool neighborhoods with lots of amenities and lots of things to do and lots of friends around and, and enjoy that sort of urban lifestyle. You can find people on the left and right who fit in those categories, right? And and then and then it plays out in the politics where, you know, you have you know like last term of council, you had folks like Gene Swanson and Colleen Hardwick aligning on votes around housing issues because yes, whereas you know, and then others who are more pro urbanist. So I think the land use question deals with culture as much as it does with with other topics. And then of course, there's the fact that like the way the rules have been written and the way that we've inherited them have all have always been structured and they've been structured in a way that do benefit certain people. Yes. But 
the public perception of who benefits is also a little bit distorted, right? So, you know, he is an example of, of there's often the sort of narrative of, of greedy developers and, and this scrupulous nature to developers and the way that they have an oversized level of power within our city or our politics and how immoral they are and all that kind of stuff. And sure, we could talk about that. But then we could also talk about the level of value that has been created overnight, over a year, over a decade for people who just had a piece of property and sat on it and did nothing with it. So yeah. how much money do they make relative to how much the developers made collectively? So there's that angle. And then there's another angle too that never gets, we don't even get that far, but we don't ever get to the next level of it, which is, well, the banks have all given out mortgages for all these properties and t- m- multiple mortgages to multiple owners who are speculating on the market, most of them Canadians, the banks have made way more money than even the property owners have. But we don't, we don't villainize the other two aspects of this whole equation. We just go after this, this one group who I I get that it's an easy target because it's a level of wealth concentration in a handful of developers, but our system has been built that way. And this is why like, you know, I'm excited about some of the changes that are coming in BC that were announced recently with the mass rezoning across the provinces, we need an ecosystem of development that is vibrant and diverse and competitive, not this sort of constraint style of development where we have three mega developers in our city and a few mid-range ones that total maybe two dozen. Like we just, that's not a good economy. And so I think that's, you know, some of the things that I think about. What Cal Salem has just described is actually a perfect segue into my conversation now with producer Aaron Johnson. So welcome back, Aaron. Hello again, Helen. I don't actually remember when we started episode one. I was trying to say like it's been like this many months. It's only been seven weeks. Has it really? Okay, well, seven weeks of releasing episodes. Yeah, yeah, which we kind of work two weeks in advance. So on, almost, right. let, let, let's just say 10 weeks, 10 weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like two to three months. It feels like it was longer than that. In a good way though. Yeah. I was super grateful for all the amazing guests that we got. Yeah. I, I've been having a lot of fun working on this. It's definitely been interesting to see getting this out into the world and just seeing the feedback, which has been extremely positive back and not just from people in our friend circles and you know, like that, like just other industry people that we have on, like with our circles on either end, just, yeah, just picking up on it and like reaching back out and going, wow, I didn't realize you were doing this. And yeah, t- thanks to everyone who's listened so far. Yeah. Thank you to everybody. I, I've gotten messages and some emails from people that I hadn't heard for a long time. And I think you as well, right, Aaron? So it was just like a really nice surprise and it was a lot of fun to work on. Quick shout out to Mark at Mini Village, but he was the first person that I ran into that I had not known and had not been connected previously, either through LinkedIn, on Twitter, that I just happened to find was listening to our podcast. And I think one of the things we had said at the beginning in episode one was if we could just get one person out there to listen and to learn something and as a result, possibly think about voting or think about getting involved in a different way, that would be a win. That to me kind of like is almost full circle because I think that that's so amazing that that happened. So Mm -hmm. yeah, like even We've had some listeners like post some of the episodes on like our Vancouver on Reddit and just seeing some of those comments from people of like, oh, I had no idea it was like this, you know, thanks for the extended conversation of, 
you know, having this out there. So yeah, if you've listened and hit follow, wherever you listen to podcasts, we very much appreciate it. And thanks. Totally. And thanks for your uh, continued ears to, to, to our, uh, to our work. Yeah. Thank you. But saying that, yes, what has been really interesting is since we've been releasing this, it's kind of weird that stuff has been kind of happening in real time. And we wanted to kind of have this chat because since we started this, there's been some changes and yeah, I, I feel like I think we should talk about that and we should definitely go through it. All right. So first off, what is the biggest surprise to you that's that's changed so far in terms of legislation? I'm going to say it feels like there's been a real shift in terms of attitude, not from everybody, but from a lot of key players, right? All the way from Sean Fraser at the federal level to Ravi Kalan and some of the legislation that's coming out from the province. It really is embracing this idea that like, hey, we've got a huge shortage. We need to act quickly and do something about it. I mean, the CMHC reports of 5.8 million homes is obviously a huge emphasis on just how much work we need to do, but it really feels like there's a change in the way that higher level, you know, policymakers or politicians are coming out in terms of how they message the issue. Mm -hmm. So with the CMHC, like there's kind of a timeline and a target for that, right? So we need 5.8 million homes by... 5.8 million homes by 2030, which is not that far away. I mean, like we're taping this at the end of November of 2023. So let's just, it's already 2024. Right. Yeah. 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 Like six years. And I mean, I... I think Kel Salem has said this, but I don't think people grasp how big that gap is. And realistically, we probably won't hit that. But I think it's important that people grasp the severity of it and that our policy changes reflect very drastic, big, bold, like have big, bold items in order to attempt to address it. What are some of the other policies that the province has come out? One that really stood out to me is the density around SkyTrain stations and bus loops. What what kind of an impact will that have? Yeah. So I actually just released a piece on Georgia Strait Online today about this. But the transit-oriented development is a new legislation that's proposed right now by the BC government. It has not yet been enacted yet. But it's the idea that we need to promote more density, more homes around rapid transit areas. And so the beauty of this legislation is that it's going to leverage stuff we already have, right? We have a lot of SkyTrain stations. We have a lot of places where people can hop on the train and get to their job, get to downtown, get to wherever they need to in a matter of, you know, minutes. So this is about opening up those areas so that we can build housing near where our infrastructure and where our amenities already are. Uh Now, I know a lot of people raised a concern about, you know, displacement, right? Because we've seen it at Metrotown and we've seen it in other areas where there's existing renters. Which we went into in depth with, with Dennis Agar. So check out those episodes if you haven't. So, So yeah, we talked about that and how that's hugely problematic and definitely not how we should be doing development. And so again, I think this is where this legislation will address that because it's not going to impact the areas that 
already have plans for allowing density and maybe some tenant protections already. It's just looking at the areas that don't currently have that opportunity. So think of like your Hold'em Skytrain Station, Nanaimo, Renfrew, Rupert, like the list goes on, right? So I think it's amazing. I think it's a great start. Even the new Skytrain expansion that's going in, it's going to affect those areas as well, right? And like down the Broadway. I mean, we don't know for sure because this is still being written up and Mm -hmm. ultimately municipalities need to work with the BC government to determine what those areas, those transit-oriented development areas are. But I think we can speculate that they should include those areas because, again, it's about leveraging the amenities and the infrastructure that we have, and we will have those as future stations. Yeah, and I, I just found it personally a bit hilarious that we released those episodes with Dennis Agar, and then all of a sudden this announcement came out, and it was like, it was just, it yeah. was a weird coincidence that it's like it dropped like right in that same time period. So we have a crystal ball here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so what are uh, some other policies that have caught your eye as well? Yeah, so sticking on that BC level, so the government, the BC government also enacted a change called Multiplex proposal, which will apply across the province on all cities above 5,000 people in population. So again, this is uh, proposed, still working through the details as to when it will be enacted and what the details will be. But this policy basically takes All of the areas where only single family or maybe a duplex is allowed currently, and it basically makes it so that you can build up to, say, four units or six units or maybe a bit more depending on some additional requirements. So again, it's taking this idea of when we talked about exclusionary zoning on a previous episode with Dennis, this idea that why should places be exclusive to only, you know, people who can afford a single family house. It's about opening some options so that we can have some gentle density and then more housing options. It almost seems too good to be true with these announcements coming out, but it's it's stuff that's really needed. Yeah. And part of me is like cautiously optimistic because, you know, one, it's not enacted yet. So there is there is risk that it might get watered down because there has been some public criticism already. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen this before, right? Like we haven't. No, we haven't. We haven't yeah. Which is why I think it's a little bit scary, a little bit daunting. And I have to credit all of our municipal staff they're dealing with a lot. They're going to have to reconcile what these new policies mean in terms of how they have to update their city plans and their OCPs, their official city plans. But I think it's important work. And we have a lot of really great city staff. We have a lot of very capable, you know, even when you talk about the discussion of infrastructure, how do we service all of these new housing and new developments? And I think we can figure it out. We have a lot of really capable engineers that work in city and outside the city. And I think it's more important that those things get ironed out, but that the intent is something drastic, which is what this looks like. And has there been anything addressing short-term rentals at all in any of the areas of BC? Yes. So BC NDP also recently introduced a ban for short-term rental and Airbnb. But I believe there is a requirement now where Airbnb has to work with the provincial government directly in order to ensure that any listings, if permitted, are actually registered and vetted, as opposed to, you know, previously where 
it was kind of hands off for Airbnb and people who are operating had to determine whether or not they were, you know, meeting local or provincial regulations when it comes to short term rentals. So I do think that will open up supply in terms of people perhaps selling their homes because they had previously bought it and just used it for Airbnb rentals. I mean, I think most people have seen a few articles out there now about that situation. Right. Is there any other thing that has come out? Yes. Last thing for BC is what we call a Vancouver Special 2.0, which is the idea of pre-approved designs that will hopefully help people be able to do the multiplex or develop the multiplex homes and developments easier, quicker, and more efficiently. And, and I have to ask you, because this is also something we talked about with a previous mm-hmm. episode with, with Albert, Albert Wong. Yep. And I think you and him had a bit of a disagreement about this pre-packaged design. I did. And I think it was because I was under the impression that if we ever did something like that, it would kick off like a committee of, oh, let's do a design of what the actual pre-approved designs would be. Whereas this situation seems very much like the government's saying, hey, we need to come up with this, light a fire under everyone's, you know, can I swear, ass? It's your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then get her done. So hopefully that's how it goes. I mean, again, there's so many capable people out there. Bryn Davidson from LaneFab has been doing designs at his own time for fun for a very long time. So stuff out there exists and we should capitalize on that. And hopefully ensure that it also is something that's feasible to build, as Albert mentioned, right? But this also seems like it is a very good part of the solution to get to that 5.8 million number. For sure. Yeah. 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 It's this idea that not only do we need to open up areas that allow us to build density, we need to ensure that that density is actually feasible to do and like those projects make sense, right? Yute Lee from about here did a really good video recently talking about, you know, the impact of these pre-approved designs. So it's a great, I think it's a great idea. All right. What else has happened since we started releasing Helen? The last thing BC did, I said last, last time, but the last, last thing that BC did was... And it's, it's a big list. We, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a big list. It's so big that I forget how many things I put on this list. The other thing BC did was put together housing targets for all of the municipalities, including highlighting a top 10 naughty list of municipalities who have been doing really poorly in terms of building new housing. Again, fantastic initiative. I think if you talk to a variety of people, you'll get different answers as to whether or not those housing targets are ambitious enough. And I think I can sympathize with why they are set at the levels they're set. But regardless, the intent and the fact that we even have this, a brand new thing of having housing targets that we previously didn't have, again, is a really great thing because it further emphasizes like, hey, this is a thing that we have to do. We have to add new supply and we're going to continue making sure that we are accountable for this as we move towards the goal of, you know, 5.8 million by 2030. 
All right. So BC, there we go. That's, that's a lot for BC. Has there been anything in Vancouver specific that's also happened? Yeah. So city of Vancouver has done some changes as well to permit multiplexes across a number of previously only single family zones, or perhaps it concluded some duplex. I believe it was called the RS zone. So it wasn't across the city, but it does consolidate a bunch of zones that were previously very low density and now permits multiplexes up to, again, about four or six or sometimes eight, depending on the specific situation. It's very similar to, I think, the BC's recent proposal. Again, great to see additional density being permitted. My question is always, is it feasible? And so that comes down to the details of what are the fees? What are the hoops you have to jump through? You know, what are those list of requirements that Albert and I talked about that you need to complete before you can actually get a permit and get a building up, right? So great initiative moving in the right direction. I think the details we continue to have to explore and fine tune. And before we move on, is there anything else that City of Vancouver has done that's uh, stood out for you? Yeah, I'm going to highlight two more things and not necessarily City of Vancouver. So I know we praised a lot of the various levels of government and policy change staff on all these recent initiatives, but folks may have also heard that Metro Vancouver as a region recently decided to change the way that they calculate the fees that are applicable on new homes and also decided to increase those fees. So a quick summary is, you know, Metro Vancouver charges fees on new developments in order to fund infrastructure that they maintain and they operate for the region of Metro Vancouver. Now, previously, these fees used to be split 50-50 between existing homeowners or the existing tax base and new developments, meaning that new developments would have to pay to Metro Vancouver a set of fees. And so what Metro Vancouver recently voted to do was to shift that breakdown of that ratio from 50-50 to 1% onto existing residents and 99% onto new development. Now, I don't have to explain to you how there's already a long list of fees and costs that new homes have to pay for. And this is just going to be another thing that's going to add to that list. But also, I think it's perpetuating this idea that we hear commonly called growth should pay for growth, which I just I think it's it's not the right way to look at development. And as Kel Salem points out, It is a win-win-win for everyone. When we have a little bit more density, when we have more people living in our community and and therefore justifies more things or bouquet of options that Dennis references, it's a better quality of life. It reduces our carbon footprint, makes funding infrastructure and additional upgrades practical. And so... It just, again, it's it's an example of how we're moving three steps forward, one step back. And so I really hope that in the coming months, years, we see a different attitude maybe from the, from the Metro Vancouver region. And sorry, last thing I will add is 
Sean Fraser has done a lot of really interesting things in the, in the sense that he's got this housing accelerator fund that he holds federally to fund different municipalities for different infrastructure projects like transit and and other things like that and He's been leveraging it in a really interesting way to make sure that municipalities understand that that money is not freely given to you and that it should only be as a result of adding and committing to sufficient new housing. And so I think, again, that's another sign that federally things are moving in the right direction and incentivizing new housing supply. So that's my roundup. Which kind of seems like that would do... What Michelle was talking about of like how post-war, World War II, like there's mm-hmm. just this huge boom that was federally supported. Yeah. And so like it's kind of getting back to that. What's old is new again kind of seems like we're. Yes. It's like, we need more public yeah. funding. We need to invest in our infrastructure, in our housing, in all of these things that make our communities and neighborhoods livable. All right. So through this whole process, you know, I've learned a lot, but I'm really curious what stood out and what did what have you learned? You've been having some conversations that you don't necessarily get to have on a day to day business in your industry, right? Yeah, I think I actually learned a lot. There were a lot of things that were new to me. That's kind of this whole industry. I feel like it's always moving. It's always changing. But I think the two things top of mind that stuck out was when Dennis mentioned the stats of traffic over the Lionsgate having peaked like some... In the 70s, I believe it was, yeah. Yeah. And and just the reason being because they were building out their own little community up there. That was fascinating to me. And that was proving out our model. That's like proof in the pudding, as people say, of like, this works, this reduces congestion, and this is how we should be building our communities. So I think that was number one. Number two was Kel Salem describing the way that our Metro Vancouver region doesn't currently have the information as to the reserve lands population mm-hmm. or upcoming new developments. That just blew my mind because yeah, that was that was amazing to me. Like, yeah. like how how is this not counted? <laughs> yeah, and you can debate, you know, if the intent is there or their interest is there, but the reality is like. So much staff time and so many people work on these plans, right? Perpetually planning, planning like how many people and where and like how much infrastructure. And then all of this. In that that episode, Kel Salem broke it all down of like, well, if we just added this many more units, then we'd have this much more. And then like, so like they know, like they know how big it is. Exactly. So the information is there. And And so when you talk about truth and reconciliation, how can you go about a conversation about our built environment without physically accounting for these existing and new communities that are going to be very dense, very livable? And I mean, they look beautiful. So yeah, that blew my mind. What about you? Yeah, I think the... One, uh, I'm glad to see uh, Dennis's new uh, nonprofit that he set up, uh, Movement, uh, which is all about being an advocate for uh, public transit. But like the stat that he threw out of just like how Seattle has more bus lanes per rider than Vancouver, which was just amazing. And as I've, I've been on transit a lot more the last few months, just for what I've been doing, like going around the city. And I'm like, wow, this is really a problem because for the last few years, I've 
pretty much been work from home and haven't needed to venture out. But like now I'm venturing out and going around the city to go to meetings and everything else. And yeah, I've had a couple of buses just go by me because they're just too full. I've been stuck in traffic on a bus like and there's nowhere to go. You're because you're a trolley bus. You can't really divert. Yeah. (laughs) And we don't prioritize that. Like and if we think about it. It's like how many people on a bus versus the four people by themselves in a whole car that's taking up, you know, however much space that's blocking that bus from being able to move ahead in its own lane or whatnot. Like, I think we really need to prioritize the people that are taking transit because it's a lot of people, especially buses. Mm -hmm. And then also just, and maybe this is something we can get into in the future, but this idea of like our roads and how we design our spaces, right? Why don't buses have priority in their own lane? Why don't pedestrians have more space? How have we been designing our roads and who are they prioritizing and who are they saying like, hey, you get to go really fast and really quickly? And and you and I were walking and having a coffee in Olympic Village recently and you pointed out like, oh, the street is this wide because they intended to have like yeah. A light rail go down here. Exactly. Like, on well, that East makes first. so much sense. Yes. Because like, why didn't, why isn't it here to have light rail go from Olympic Village out to Granville Island? And like the tracks are like halfway there in between anyway. Exactly. Like yeah, we have I actually all these... went out. I actually went out to Granville Island over the weekend and I was like, you know what would have made this trip better <laughs> is, some, <laughs> is using this rail that's right here. Yes. Like, because I just missed the bus and I had to wait 25 minutes for the next yes, bus. the just... 84. It's brutal. Yeah, all these missed opportunities, but yet if a curb is broken or a road is annoying to drive on, you can bet like people would be, yes, let's fix it. Like that's important, right? So like it just is about what we prioritize. And again, I want to do a quick shout out to Vision Zero Vancouver, who does really amazing work for highlighting, you know, we need to change the way we design roads and our public spaces so that we prioritize pedestrians and cyclists and other people who are not in cars. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's been some accidents recently over the weekend, too, mm-hmm. that involved pedestrians and cars. And yeah, you might see it if you're out walking. Vision Zero has been putting stats on on the intersections there. So yeah, there's a sticker outside my intersection. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize nice. there were that many accidents with pedestrians, like yeah. just outside mine. And I'm in a relatively calm area of town. Yeah, all preventable. The last thing that I was pleasantly pleased about was as we were going through and editing and publishing these different episodes, it was a nice surprise to see how everything tied together. Like I kind of hoped that it would, but it really did. Because you see so many different organizations with their own yeah. with their own agendas and their own like plans of what they're focusing on. But like, sure. how, how does it kind of come together? Yeah. And, and it really emphasizes the exponential effects, right, of all these little incremental changes that we do of adding more housing near, you know, public transit, near communities that are safer for people to walk in, right? It just, they all add up and it's not really linear. So I really hope that as all of these amazing people that we spoke to do all the work that they do advancing and advocating for improvements to our built environment, that those things stack up and more people are able to kind of see and value a different city than how we used to build it. 
So where do we go from here, Helen? Yeah, good question. I think I should ask you that question. Yes. Yeah. 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 Where do where do we go from here, Aaron? Well, so we originally committed to five episodes and we've self-funded this the whole thing because we just wanted to get this project out because we wanted to create a resource for people. Mm-hmm. And it's been an amazing process. It's been great that we've been getting the feedback of like kind of meeting our goal of like, oh, people are learning. They They do find this as a helpful resource. And then we got to the last couple episodes and we just had so much great material that it's like, hey, yeah. can can we do one more? Sure. And then and then we did that and we're like, hey, can we do one more? And it's like, yeah, sure. So so that's why we're on episode seven and we're kind of recapping this now. So so we're gonna take a little bit of a break, but I'm excited that we kind of have the means. It's not official yet, but we do have the means to continue this project and continue developing. And I'm very excited for what comes ahead in the year. Yeah, I can't wait. And I already have so many ideas about future topics, people that I would love to chat with about those topics. I've thrown a few at you and you're like, hang on, let's just wait for the season two. Like, yeah, yeah. There's so many. There's so many really great people, like not just in Vancouver, like across the country doing really cool stuff. And globally. Like there's stuff that are, that's happening in other countries that could be great lessons and great references for Vancouver as well. And just like if anyone ever wants to pay for me to go to the Netherlands, you know, (laughs) can contact me. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, yeah, I'm super excited that it looks like we might be able to continue this. And it's not going anywhere. It will live online. So this is this is a resource, but the continued continued development and and also create that accessibility for people because one one thing that has been kind of irritating for me, but I mean, it is quite a financial cost is I would like to get these episodes translated so they are more accessible mm-hmm. to newcomers of Canada, people whose you know English is not their first language. So I'm working on that. I'll be really happy the day that we can have this podcast accessible in multiple languages. Yeah, that would be an important goal because... Again, being a resource, being easily accessible, hopefully meeting people where they're at. I want to say thank you to you, Aaron. You know, I didn't know anything about podcasting when I started this. I want to thank all of the guests that we've had on all of our episodes. So that's Michelle, Albert, Dennis, Kel Salem, and Michelle again. See, good way to round out the series. Full circle. Two different Michelles bookending it. Yeah. Exactly. It was intentional. Clearly, I've planned it all out. <laughs> yeah, I just want to thank everybody who took the time to listen, even if you don't agree with everything that we say. And I hope that you did learn a, a little bit, maybe something new or, you know, something that sparked your curiosity. And thank you for everyone who reached out, who had feedback. Really appreciate it. Just I had so much fun. Did you? Yeah, I did. And and I want to thank you for saying yes to a coffee. And then here we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 been it's been a really great project so far. Really looking forward to the future. And then again, like to you, the listener, anyone who's left a comment, sent us feedback, whatnot. I mean, it's it's great to see and it's it's nice to know that there are people listening because I mean uh, when I first started in radio, you never really knew unless the phone <laughs> rang. So <laughs> it just kind of went out into the ether. But it is it is nice to see that that the audience is growing quite rapidly, actually, and, and, and all the comments that are coming back. Yeah. So stay tuned. 
You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loy. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Aaron Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com.